Well, thank you so much, Danny. Um, praise God for the privilege and opportunity to be here with you all, brothers and sisters in Christ, and uh, really a warm welcome from the Orchard Evangelical Free Church, and grace and peace from God our Father through Jesus Christ our Lord, uh, friends from all at the Orchard. We love what the Lord is doing here among all of you at EBF, and uh, praise God for this fellowship, for your fellowship that is here week in and week out, and on mission to glorify the Lord in Evanston and the surrounding areas. It is a vital work, it is an important work, and God is pleased as you do it. Well, you've been in our prayers often, and uh, just know that and be aware of that. It is a, it is a joy to open uh, God breathed Scripture with you today. Well, he is known as one of the greatest conquerors in world history. He was charismatic, ambitious, a brutal and murderous ruler. He was also tutored by one of the world's greatest philosophers and thinkers, Aristotle. He conquered nation after nation and people after people, building the largest empire that the ancient world had ever seen. Yet he died relatively young, the age of 32. Not once did he lose a battle in all of his days. Who was this, if you didn't guess already? Alexander the Great, who lived from 356 to 323 B.C., He conquered most of the ancient world, spanning from Greece to Pakistan. When he came to Jerusalem, rather than destroy this city, as he did so many other towns and peoples before that, something unexpected happened. The high priest of Jerusalem walked out, carrying something. And as Alexander and his army came forward, the high priest unraveled, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, this scroll. And when the book of Daniel was showed him, Alexander, wherein Daniel described that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended. And as he was then glad, he dismissed the multitude present. So the holy word of God that we just heard read, a portion of this text once upon a time in ancient history, was read, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, subsequent chapters, and it turned away the wrath of this conqueror, Alexander the Great. But the Holy Word of God, in particular the sacred text we come to today, is not simply meant to turn away tyrants and conquerors. Primarily, this book is meant to comfort the people of God. As you heard a passage, or I should say a sermon recently on Daniel, I just want to briefly introduce this to you, but I'm always curious, how many of you, perhaps in your personal Bible reading plan, in your family worship, or in your small group, how many of you are in Daniel right now? Anyone by a show of hands happen to be in Daniel? There's always usually one. No one. Okay, that's all right. You'll get there eventually. You'll get there eventually. Well, it takes about an hour, 20 minutes or so to read straight through the book of Daniel. I commend that to you in your personal reading and family worship or as a small group as well. Daniel's personal name means God is judge, God's judge. And in Daniel, you'll read some of these awesome prophecies. You'll read of conquests and visions, dreams, and you will also see brush after brush with death, stands of God-glorifying biblical courage amongst pressure and superstition. The book of Daniel is divided into two main parts. Chapter 1 through 6 is mostly historical. 
And then 7 through 12, you have four apocalyptic visions, as it were. And interestingly, the book of Daniel is in Hebrew from Daniel 1, 1 through 2, 4. And then it transfers into Aramaic, the lingua franca of the day, the common tongue language of the day. Going back then in Hebrew, in Daniel 8, 1 through the end of the book, why is this the case? Many have suggested that it's because what was relevant, most relevant, I should say, to all nations, to all people, would have been written in Aramaic. And what was particularly comforting to the Jewish people as they suffered and struggled would have been written in Hebrew. Daniel has been called the revelation of the Old Testament. Revelation being the last book of the New Testament. And Daniel representing an Old Testament version of Revelation because of its apocalyptic nature. Now, there are a few other writings in the Old Testament as well that also have apocalyptic nature in them. Isaiah, Zechariah, a few other portions as well, but Daniel's the big one. And the book of Revelation, this last book in the New Testament, it, it comes from that Greek word, apocalypsis, revelation. And the idea here is that something's been disclosed, something has been uncovered, and we get kind of to see what God is doing in human history. You'll see strange images that bend your mind. You will be invoked even in your heart to fear, to wonder at strange images and what is actually going on here. But apocalyptic literature has a specific purpose. Two scholars note this. Quote, apocalyptic literature provides a suffering community of framework that enables them to make sense of what seems to be the inactivity of God and the ascendancy of evil. It offers them an apologetic, explaining to them that God will, in fact, put an end one day to all evil and will establish justice and peace forever, ensuring an eternal reward for those who persevere. So the book of Daniel was meant primarily to bring comfort to the people of God as they went through their time of alienation, of wandering as exiles, as aliens in a foreign land, without a king, seemingly. And Daniel would have given them a future hope to have their eyes fixed upon. And this book will press you and me and grind away our wrong ideas of God. It will blow our minds when it comes to thinking of God as not interested in the affairs of the nations. But then what Daniel also does is it actually reminds us as well that God is also in the personal details of human interactions. And so let's get into the story today. Daniel 1, 1 and 3, if you have your Bible, look there or the words should be on the screen. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Being besieged is a truly traumatic event. Your home city, this land that you've known, you would have watched relatives and neighbors starve to death. You would have watched family and friends be killed, forcibly separated from one another. And if you were a young man of peak physical condition and keen intellect in this context, probably between the ages of 13 and 17, you've been carted off to Babylon, a most magnificent pagan city in the ancient world. Babylon was where the famous hanging gardens were, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Babylon was a superpower of the ancient world at the time. 
And they had conquered nation after nation after nation. And then what they did is they actually brought the vessels of the house of the holy living God to the land of Shinar. If you go back to Genesis, you would see that this reminds the people of none other than the Tower of Babel, the land when people seem to forget God altogether. So astonishingly, we have here the people of God's city besieged, suffering and anguish, unlike ever experienced before, and then what was in the temple, the Holy of Holies, the place where God met with his people and his presence dwelt. Those special vessels, those holy set-apart vessels taken off to a foreign land. This was a way of showing that Babylonian gods were superior, at least in their mind, to all the other nations' God, including Israel's God and Judah's God. But it's important to realize here that the Lord has made it clear in his word that if his people disobeyed him, there would be curses, there would be consequences. Back in Leviticus 26.33, we read these words, I will scatter you among the nations. I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your city shall be waste. And then in Isaiah, we read something similar. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, all that which is in your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so so here we are in this story, these young, impressionable teenagers, teenage boys, 13 to 17 years of age, taken off to Babylon, this foreign superpower. It was promised, if you rebel against me, there will be consequences, away from their communities of faith, away from what they had known, and right before a large wave of exiles would go from Judah to Babylon. These young men, who would have been the the cream of the crop, as it were, were to be assimilated into the Babylonian culture. These teenage boys are given different names to represent that they are subject to different gods. Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, is now Belteshazzar, which means lady wife of Marduk, patron god of Babylon. Hananiah, whose name means the Lord is gracious, is now Shadrach, which means command of Alku, one of the gods of Babylon. Mishael, which means in Hebrew, who is what God is, is now Meshach, who is what Alku is. And Azariah, which means in Hebrew, the Lord helps, is now Abednego, servant of Negu, the son of Marduk. So these young teenage boys are to be assimilated, subjected to a foreign pagan power, renamed and indoctrinated in a godless pagan worldview and education. An education, mind you, that was immersed in superstition. It would have been a very, very dark time, the darkest hour that the people of God had ever faced, and certainly for those who lived through this, these teenage boys. Hopelessness would have clawed upon them. Consider that probably the faith of many they once viewed as strong leaders had abandoned the faith altogether. We sense this in our own situation, though none of us have been carted off, and God willing never will be, to a foreign superpower and subjected to their dominance. Pressure is all around us to conform to the world 
we find that those who once seemed to be strong Christians in the faith have now forsaken that faith that they once professed. In recent weeks, Joshua Harris, Christian author, former pastor, has done this, as well as a singer who you might call someone who is Christian famous, abandoned the faith they once publicly professed. And so consider the parallel situation to what we face today. We are also, according to Scripture, in exile, aliens in a land that is not our home. For we wait, brother and sister in Christ, for the land of righteousness where holiness dwells and where we're in the presence of the Lord. So maybe you're here today and you are a student in a public school, facing pressure as your peers continue to cave and move towards a more and more godless way of living. Or maybe you're a college student or grad student, someone right here at Northwestern or another college or university, and there's a professor in there who you know you're having this year and they reject outright the word of God. There's pressure upon you. When you think about your own job, perhaps, in the business world, in the market sector, whatever it might be, your vocational life, you have neighbors around you, you have other friends who are putting pressure upon you, and brother, sister in Christ, hear me on this, I don't think it's going to get easier. I think it's only going to get harder, and that's why communities of faith like EBF are absolutely vital to bring us back to a God-centered way of thinking and living and to remind us of what God has spoken in the written word. So what I want us to do today is, uh, my prayer for you has been this, that we would be able together to take heart and to stand firm and remain faithful. I hope more than when you first came in here today, you're able to take heart and hold fast to the fact that the Lord is truly sovereign. We're going to look today at three reasons we can take heart amidst great unfaithfulness. Three reasons to take heart amidst great unfaithfulness. And the first is this. Take heart, brother, sister, in the Lord. Even in the darkest hour, the promise-keeping God is leading his people. Oh, dear brother, sister in Christ, take heart and know this with certainty. Even in your darkest hour, the Lord, who is a promise-keeping God, is leading his people, you and me. Look at Daniel 1, 2, and 3. We read, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Whose hand was this? A pagan king, a godless king. God gave his holy people into the hand of this godless king. This would never be how any of us would write history. We're reacting to it. We're responding to it. And here the scripture is telling us the curtains are coming back and we're seeing God gave Judah, his people, into the hand of this foreign king. This means very clearly that the Lord is in charge. He's not off in the distance, caught off guard, not falling asleep at the wheel of the universe. No, not by a long shot, brother, sister, in the Lord. We see here that evil people who rejected the Lord, God allowed them to triumph over his people. And what was Babylon thinking? What was Nebuchadnezzar thinking? We won. We're dominant. We're superior. But again, the curtains are pulled back and we see actually no God gave. Now, there are many texts of the Bible that show us this is what happens in human affairs among nations. Here's just a few. Isaiah 40 
tells us this, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And in the book of Daniel, one chapter later, we read these two glorious verses in Daniel 2.21 and Daniel 2.37. He, that is the Lord, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. That's what Daniel is saying to the superpower, Nebuchadnezzar. He's saying, you, king of kings, have been given this by the ultimate king, the Lord. And so, Christian, never forget, when you start to grow discouraged and overwhelmed by what you see, as you look at the powers of the world and perhaps grow overwhelmed or discouraged, you think to yourself even what's happened this week in in China and Hong Kong. If any of you have read or been tracking with that story, some very serious, decades-long consequences of what will follow based on what's going on there. Never forget, never forget, brother, sister in Christ, that in the darkest hour, the Lord is still leading his people. A biblical attitude towards these things is not to think of leaders and authorities as being outside of the will of God, but firmly within the will of God and being used according to his purposes. We sang it this morning. When we think about evil that is occurring, God is working that. He is moving history for his purposes and for his glory. And so I wonder what news article did you read this morning? What has been dwelling on your mind that you would describe in your own personal life as the darkest hour you've experienced as a Christian? Maybe it's happening now. And you can't believe that the Lord would lead you here, that the Lord would give you to this. Oh, brother, sister in Christ, might you hold on to this reality that there is a God who is graciously working. He is behind the scenes and he is moving. There are no accidents with our sovereign Lord. And even with those who are evil like Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, we need to have a Proverbs 16 mentality that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of the trouble. So God raised up this brutal king. The Lord is carrying out his word as we saw earlier. Leviticus and Isaiah, very clearly, this is a consequence that God said would come to pass. But recognize this as well, brother, sister in Christ, that as the Lord is working in this situation, as he is giving the king of his people, Judah, the southern kingdom, over to this foreign superpower, that the sovereign God is ultimately the only one who's truly in control. Now, what this does not mean is that every decision we see that every major leader in the world has made is right or should be endorsed or blessed or is to be celebrated by us as Christians, and it certainly isn't celebrated by our God. We have to recognize and we have to live as if this is the case, because it is. We have to live in light of reality, that in our darkest hour, in the darkest hours of the world, even when global superpowers who seem to reject God are on the move and seem to be conquering, there is a God in heaven who sits on his throne and who is orchestrating all of these things to pass, not simply for nations who reject him to have power in, the, in, in a moment, but also for his glorious purposes and for his people's eternal good. And so, 
brother, sister in Christ, might we be those who recognize this great reason to celebrate that we can take heart even in our darkest hour. The Lord is on his throne and he is leading his people, you and me, no matter where that darkest hour is. The second reason we have to take heart from this text is this. Take heart, the Lord sees all your biblical resolve. Brother, sister in Christ, take heart, the Lord sees all, every ounce, every single second of your biblical resolve. We see in Daniel 1.8 that Daniel had resolved he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now consider this again, a teenage boy. We're talking 13, 14, maybe 15 or 16 at the oldest. This is a young man. Think about the resolve that was in his heart and in his mind. This is astonishing to consider this young man's biblical resolve. There, there's something that can get lost, though, in an English translation of this. There's a Hebrew word, shum, shum. And the idea here is uh, used a few different times. Daniel is given, is shumed, the name, Belteshazzar. And then Daniel, in verse 8, made up his mind. He shumed. Okay, but we have to see this so we can actually see it. Dale Ralph Davis puts this in, in really helpful context. He uses the same word to describe it. Dale Ralph Davis writes this, the chief of staff set names for them. That's the assimilation. So he set for Daniel, Belteshazzar. And then we have this plan words, Daniel set it for himself. He resolved in his heart. Some other translations can help us draw this out a little bit more. The KJV says, Daniel purposed in his heart he would not defile himself. Daniel placed upon his heart that he would not defile himself. That's the NET. The NASB says this, the New American Standard Version of the Bible. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. So friends, think about this for a moment. Uh, The Hebrew word lev It occurs about 600 times in the Old Testament. It most often refers to the inner governing center of all that you are, your innermost being. So not as we like to think of it in a Western mentality of uh, the seat of your affections, your emotions. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. This is all that governs you inwardly, your will, your affections, your desires, your intellect, every part of you that's within you. Daniel had purposed it in his heart, in his mind. He had set it upon his heart that he would not defile himself. As we continue on throughout Daniel, we read in Daniel 9, 2, that very clearly the prophet Jeremiah's words were on his heart. He was thinking of God's plan. He was considering God's promise. It was on his heart. But many have also noted that likely Leviticus 11 was also on Daniel's heart. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. See, the people of God were set apart and to participate in even eating food that would make you unclean would be to defy the word of God. The Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament that had these dietary laws and restrictions They were on Daniel's heart and mind. Now, some commentators have suggested that perhaps this is because the food was sacrificed to idols, but he also took vegetables. And many have noted that vegetables were also probably in Babylon offered to idols. 
So what's going on here is Daniel, and we don't have everything within the text, but Daniel knew that to some extent his heart would have been polluted. The king of Babylon would have been seen as glorious, and his God, the one true God, would have been seen as less than. And so Daniel had this biblical resolve in his heart, in his mind. I wonder, brother, sister, in Christ, do you have this kind of biblical resolve so that if you found yourself in a very difficult situation, keep in mind where everyone else is going this way, all of your peers moving this way, going along with the program of indoctrination in Babylon, that you would stand here and go no further. Would that characterize you? I wonder, does all of God-breathed Scripture dwell within you? Do you have this kind of heart-level inner man, inner woman resolve that you will not defile yourself. It's interesting to think about other texts as well that Daniel perhaps had on his mind and heart. Psalm 141, verse 4, we read this. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Now, there's no way to prove if this was actually a text that was on Daniel's heart. But we do know quite clearly that Daniel recognized that to participate in this meal would, to some extent, compromise his convictions. And so certainly, Scripture, whether it was Leviticus, Jeremiah, Psalm, Scripture was on this young boy's heart. Like Daniel, many things in our lives will be set for us. Many things will be pre-planned for us, but brother, sister in Christ, we actually must control, we actually must dwell on and fix the eyes of our hearts upon that which we can actually set. And that is our hearts. What are we thinking about? What are we dwelling upon? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, is what we read in Colossians chapter 3. It is worth asking at this point, by the way, would your young men, would your young women in this church family stand the test? If something like this were to happen, if they fed on the ministry of the word here, would they withstand that at 13, 14, 15? After five years, 10 years of being here in this church family, what kind of children's ministry, youth ministry is being promoted? And also, what are you doing, whether you have kids or not? What are you doing to help them to have this biblical resolve in their hearts? Oh, brother, sister in Christ, might we recover this kind of Daniel-like biblical resolve? I wonder what governs you inwardly. What ultimately drives you to make decisions? What really leads you? What really pushes you in whatever direction you go to make decisions? And would you stand alone if it meant not compromising on the truth of the word of God? Well, what does this look like for us as Christians? In the New Testament, 1 Peter 1, we read a similar text in the sense that we are also called to view ourselves as those in exile. We're called to conduct ourselves with fear throughout our time of exile, knowing that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Brother, sister in Christ, we have more reason, not less, to be resolved biblically in the way we live. So we must stand firm in the faith once delivered for all the saints. 
We must hold fast to the God-breathed scripture and cling closely to the written word of God. May you, brother, sister in Christ, lay the truth of scripture upon your heart so that you'll stand in that day of pressure. We'll look at this more in a moment, but for now, note that the Lord Jesus on the cross in his darkest hour, his time of need, his biblical resolve was on full display as he stood there and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from scripture, Psalm 22. The scriptures filled the Lord Jesus Christ's heart. He was resolved in his innermost being to have the scriptures upon his mind and heart as he bore that penalty and he went to that cross for your sins and mine, brother and sister. The third reason to take heart this morning drawn from Daniel is simply this. Christian brother, sister in Christ, take heart. The merciful Lord can grant you favor in the eyes of the godless. He can do this and he often does do this. The Lord is gracious to us as his people, giving us things that we don't deserve, that we don't expect. And in Daniel 1.9, we see that the compassion, the favor of the chief of eunuchs was on Daniel. And God, again, gave him this. It was a gift. God not only gave a whole nation, his people, over to a foreign nation that rejected him. God also gave Daniel one individual favor in the eyes of another individual. So brother, sister in Christ, see our sovereign God who is working not only in the nations and among all people groups, but also at the level of individuals. Three times we read in this text, God gave, God gave, God gave. Laced throughout this is God's sovereign hand at work. Daniel 1, 17 and 19 through 20. These four youths were renamed. God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I would also note, kind of comically, it's the only time you notice a compliment to being fat in the flesh. That's not something that we typically in our culture would say is a compliment. And they were the fattest in the flesh. I read that and I was like, no one would think that's a compliment in our culture, but that was a sign of the favor of God. See, the kingdoms, the powers and the rulers that we think are invincible sometimes and they think are unstoppable in what they're doing. They forget that our God is a God of details. And see, through the favor that God gave to Daniel and to his friends, the Lord was extending his merciful reach to a people who did not deserve this mercy. It's so important to realize, brother, sister in Christ, where we stand and where the nations on earth stand. Dale Ralph Davis, again, the Old Testament commentator, says this, remember that the servants of God will simply out-endure the kingdoms of this age. That's true for you and me, brother, sister in Christ. That's true for the church of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ said quite clearly that he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing withstands what the Lord is doing, what the Lord is building by his spirit through his word to glorify his son. Nothing withstands that. Of course, it's vital also to realize that we're not guaranteed, we're not always assured of this favor. We can't guarantee it, but what we can say is that God is perfectly within his abilities to grant us that favor, and he often does give us this favor to extend his mercy. And so take heart, brothers, sisters in Christ. The God of heaven 
has all authority, and he can grant you favor in the eyes of that boss who constantly bothers you and hounds you. And you just think, he will not get off my back. She will not get off my back. Oh, brother, sister in Christ, might you recognize in that setting, wherever you find yourself, that there is a God who can, on a second, in the drop of a hat, give you favor in a place where you once had disfavor. It's critical for us to recognize that this is a, a, really a glimpse. This story of Daniel is really a glimpse of something far more glorious, far more awesome. Because see, we recognize this was a dark hour for Judah. Their sins deserved this. And God had a plan to extend his mercy in the nation of Babylon and then Persia. But it's so critical to recognize that Daniel's biblical resolve was not the greatest example of this. No, the Lord Jesus Christ very clearly was the one who did this most faithfully. We read clearly that it was the will of God to crush the Lord Jesus Christ. So consider, God gave Judah, his people, over to Babylon. Consider also, the Lord gave his son to be crucified on the cross. Many people have pointed this out. When you ask who killed Jesus, there's a fly or something flying around here. So if you see me going like this, I'm not going crazy. I'm just trying to swat that thing away. As you think about who killed Jesus, the answer to that question, the Jews, the Romans, ultimately God. It was within the plan of God. It was the will of God to crush him. Romans 8 tells us that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. There's the language of gave. The son was given over to death on the cross. In Acts 2, we read that on the earliest disciples of Jesus, the apostles, they recognized this as well. Gloriously, they saw the sovereign hand of Almighty God, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. We recognize that Scripture, this biblical resolve, was on their hearts and minds because they knew And they reference right back to Psalm 16 when they said, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. They connected the dots and they knew that the God of heaven and earth, the creator, would not allow his son who had come and taken on flesh and added that human nature to his divinity, truly God and truly man. He would not allow him to remain dead in the grave. But this was a part of the plan of God. Judah deserved to go into this exile to be aliens. The Lord Jesus Christ did not, and yet he went willingly. Oh, brother, sister in Christ, how great and glorious is our God, who though he did not have to make himself in this place of exile, this land of alienation and suffering, he did, he drew near to us. It was not an accident. It was not, oh, look what happened. It was a part of the definite plan of our great God. Jesus' mind supremely had the scriptures on his heart. He had this unshakable confidence and hope. And this is all planned. Not accidental, but planned. During his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ constantly was talking about going to Jerusalem. Two texts in Luke show us that, again, he's filled with the plans of God, the word of God. Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What that meant was that he's going to the cross. He's going to be tried. He's going to suffer. 
He's going to die. He's going to fulfill that role as the suffering servant who would be crushed according to the plan of God. And in Luke 18, 31, taking the 12, Jesus said to them, see, we're going to Jerusalem, that place of suffering, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus was filled more than Daniel, more than anyone else, with the word of God, with the promise of God, with the plan of God. That is what he was resolved in his heart and mind to do, to fulfill that perfectly. He knew that the scriptures were all about him and his work being accomplished on the cross. And so, brother, sister in Christ, may you be encouraged today. May you take heart today wherever you find yourself. There's great reason, great hope to recognize that wherever you go, however dark things get for you, the darkest hour ever experienced was from the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. He went there for you willingly. He went there for me willingly. Later on in Daniel, there are some awesome prophecies. I hope you really will take me up on that challenge to read through this great book. You can read of the Son of Man who would come. You can read of nations being conquered. But you read supremely of one who would come who had an everlasting kingdom. One who would come and establish his reign forevermore. When we think about our lives, it's easy to get lost here and there and thinking that God doesn't really care about these things. The little affairs, the little details. Surely he's more concerned about the nation's. Or we think he's only concerned about my personal affairs and the nations he's not really concerned about. Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith has greatly strengthened my faith over the years. It's filled with biblical reflection and insight. And uh, this is a part of the confession that describes God's providence. And you can't really improve on these words. So I just want to read part of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, which says this of God's providence. God the creator of all things doth uphold direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Brother, sister in Christ, take heart as you go through that hour of darkness, the promise keeping God is leading you still. Brother, sister in Christ, take heart. God sees all your biblical resolve. You may stand alone, but the Lord sees it and the Lord is pleased by it. And brother, sister, take heart in your heart of hearts and recognize that there's a God over heaven and over earth who can grant you great favor over your greatest persecutors and haters over those who despise you and reject you, God can grant you in a second great favor. And he does all these things and much, much more for his great glory and our good. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you so much for your grace to us, your sovereign power in working in the details of our lives as individuals, but also at the level of nations and empires doing this all for your glory and for the advance of your son's kingdom. Oh God, strengthen the faith of these brothers and sisters in Christ. May they take heart in your glorious promises in Daniel. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity. We thank you for the example of Daniel 
We praise you supremely for the example of Jesus Christ and for what he came to do. God, might we treasure Christ more fully. Might we live for you and persevere and recognize that even as evil seems to ascend, even as we sometimes are caught in disbelief and think that you are inactive in the world, may we take heart and persevere and know that all your promises will come to pass. Oh, thank you, Lord, for your grace to us in King Jesus. And it's in his name we pray and all who agreed said together. Amen.